Good morning, gents. Good morning, gents. So good to see so many of you with us here this morning. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Pat. I'm involved in helping run uh, Burning Man, and it's fantastic to have you with us, especially if this is your first time. Um, many thanks for making the effort, although it is becoming more spring-like, isn't it? It's nice to have a bit more daylight, a bit more warmth uh, on the cycle in than any other cyclists out there. Uh, we're thrilled this morning to have Mark Green with us. Um, I first heard Mark speak at a Christian conference called Soul Survivor, uh, or it could have been Momentum, uh, some years ago. And I was amazed that a man uh, could be so smartly dressed, sophisticated and suave, and yet be uh, teaching on the Christian scene. So uh, Mark, as he will explain, um, has a background in advertising. He, he describes himself as, I used to work in advertising and I am prepared to admit it. Um, he is now executive director of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity and works as a speaker, writer and consultant specialising both in helping Christians engage fruitfully in their everyday context out in the world and also helping churches to help them. His books include Thank God It's Monday, The Great Divide, The Groundbreaking Imagine How We Can Reach the UK and Fruitfulness on the Frontline, which um, Tim uh, reminds me is... Uh, the book they're looking at here is St. Michael's for Lent. So there's some copies around the corner if you want to pick one up um, uh, and pay for it. On your way out, <laughs> you are more than welcome. So uh, it's fantastic to see you here this morning as we continue our series in Old Testament. Uh, Men of God, uh, would you please give a warm welcome to Mark Green. Well, good morning. It's uh, fantastic to be here. Um, as it turns out, I was uh, listening to another, uh, one of the great men of God, really, um, John Stott, recently this week, and uh, he was telling a story of a man called Willie Sangster, who was interviewing a candidate for pastoral ministry. And the candidate said to them, I'm not the kind of man who would set the Thames on fire. And Sangster said, I'm not interested in whether you would set the Thames on fire. What I want to know is, if I picked you up by the scruff of the neck and dropped you in the Thames, would you sizzle? <laughs> so I'm hoping that it would be a, that apparently you are the sizzlers. So, um, as was said, I used to work in advertising, so indeed you can trust every word I say and every picture you see. I did spend ten years uh, working in advertising in, in London and in uh, New York, and I absolutely adored it. And uh, now I work for London, as you've heard, we do a variety of things, and you've done a great pitch for me, so that's saved at least 30 seconds, so thank you for that. Some resources and uh, some stuff there. And this morning, my Old Testament man is Boaz, and uh, he's described as a man of valour, a man of renown. He is not the most spectacular figure in the Old Testament, um, not as spectacular as some of the figures that... Uh, you've looked at previously in season four of Burning Man. Uh, Boaz is no bold, uncompromising prophet like Micaiah ben Imla, who, in a corporate situation, he has got to deliver the unpalatable godlike truth and uh, gets fired for it, pretty much. He is no Jacob, father of the twelve tribes, cunning, manipulative, wrestling with God, wounded by God, wondering what is God doing in this situation. He's no Moses, as you heard from Graham recently, sent by God to pursue his agenda of liberating his people. But Boaz is one of the few people in the Old Testament that the text commends without reservation. 
A man with a particular place in God's plan who foreshadows Christ in a particular way and also offers us, I think, a picture of this heroic, fruitful, ordinary life in an ungodly culture. And perhaps has something particular to teach us about living for Christ in some of the places where you will find yourself in a couple of hours' time. I don't intend to go on for a couple of hours, but uh, and you won't be here if I do. <laughs> so Boaz uh, makes, as perhaps you know, his first appearance in the book of Ruth, and his last in the genealogy of Jesus. As you may recall, the book of Ruth begins uh, with the story of an Israelite couple, Elimelech and Naomi, moving to Moab because of a famine. And Elimelech has two sons, and uh, they both marry Moabite women. Because um, there's no other kind of women to marry, presumably. And then Elimelech dies, and then one by one, his two sons die. And sadly, they die without having any male children. Now, as you may recall, that one of the requirements of uh, your testament law is that if you die without an heir, then one of your relatives is meant to marry your wife and inseminate her, if you like, and get her with child, so that she then carries on your name. That was a requirement it's called leveret marriage. So, for those of you who remember, and I have listened to David Jackman because I was terrified of coming to talk to you without having listened to David Jackman on Old Testament narrative. Uh, for those of you who remember that talk, you will recall. Uh, that he talks about identifying what the problem is in the narrative and looking for how the people and or God may seek to resolve the problem. So here is the problem. The problem is that there is a famine, that there are three women with no food, and there is no male heir to carry on the name in perpetuity. So what will the people do with the problem, and what will Boaz uh, do, and what will God do with the problem? So I'm going to be reading from Ruth chapter 2, which is the main section in which he appears, so he also appears in 3 and 4. And uh, what I'm going to do is, after I've uh, read this, what I'm suggesting we do, I don't know if you do this ever, but I'm going to suggest that I just leave you for a minute in silence, for you just to see what the Spirit may be saying, particularly to you, uh, through the text, unmediated by me. So i just give you a minute after that. Is that right? So this is the living word of the living God. May it nourish you this day. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the tribe of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out into the field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the town of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz <laughs> arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you! The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. 
She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Gaia said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. With this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. Though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks there from the bundles and leave them for, for, for her to pick them up. And don't drink. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an egg. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. The mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz until the harvest and we harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother in law. So I'll just give you a minute now. So Father, we come to before you. We we want to say that we love you. We want to say that we yearn to live in your ways. And we pray that through the time, through your spirit and your word, you might help us to love you more completely and to follow you in things that we have to do this day and beyond this day. For Jesus' sake. So the book of Ruth is often seen as this kind of sweet story and it's easily dismissed as such, a kind of lovely country village idyll, a sort of lark rise to Candleford, a kind of Cranford, a kind of pre-World War I Downton Abbey sort of context. But it's always important to look at the context and the context we're given in the book of Ruth is, as it says in the first chapter, in the days when the judges ruled. 
It's the period after the death of Joshua. The people are caught in this terrible, degenerate, downward spiral. They rebel against God. God disciplines them through invasion and famine. They plead for mercy, uh, and God sends a warrior rescuer. Ehud, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. Wars are raged. Enemies are slaughtered. Peace is restored, but rebellion persists. And when we get to Boaz, we're very close to the time when a priest will travel openly with a concubine. A concubine who is then gang-raped and whose body is then cut up in pieces and posted round the land to summon the tribes to punish those who raped her. This is not a pretty time of history. So the setting here is no lark rise, it's no candlelight. It's more like CSI Taggart and Broadchurch. So um, Boaz is one of my heroes, uh, which is why I've chosen him today. He is a man like Prince Philip, who is usually overshadowed by his more famous wife, particularly when she's wearing something as gorgeous as that lemon confection. He's actually the first believer in the one true God that the Bible records using the phrase, the Lord be with you. I've just been hoping that somebody would say back to you, clearly you're not Anglicanized enough. (laughs) The Lord be with you. Today, the phrase, as you know, is most often associated with Anglican or Church of England priests who say it in their, to their congregations in church on a Sunday, often wearing robes. But, where do we hear it here? Said by a worker to a team at work on a weekday wearing workwear. Hmm. Interesting how we've taken a phrase that's usually used in the world and we now usually use it somewhere more different. It's a prayer, isn't it? That in this ordinary workplace, in this ordinary labour, under the hot Bethlehem sun, God might show them favour. The Lord be with you in your accounting. The Lord be with you in EY. The Lord be with you at Goldman Sachs. The Lord be with you in your law practice. The Lord be with you as you write that letter. The Lord be with you at Mole Farm. The Lord be with you as you answer a phone, do that email, listen to that volcanically irritating client. The Lord be with you in these places. So long before Paul exhorts the Christians in Colossae and says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, work it with all your heart. Long before that, Boaz has grasped the significance of daily work to the God who commanded people to work and take care of the world. Now, of course, the greeting the Lord be with you might just have been a kind of conversational way of saying hi, you know. I remember going to America and people would say, how are you doing? And I would answer the question, well, it's going all right, thank you very much. And they would be in Kansas while I was still talking. It wasn't really a question about how I was doing, it was just a way of grunting at me. Uh, and very warmly too. But actually in this text it's clear that uh, Boaz is called a man of renown or of noble character. The, the, the word in Hebrew is chayel. If, if you're Scottish it's a very easy thing to say, sort of ochi. And it means valour. The primary use in, in the Old Testament is of military. Military. It's military. It's a warrior word. And uh, it's also the word used to sum up the woman in Proverbs 31. You may recall this woman of valour, who indeed combines such a formidable range of domestic, commercial, and leadership skills that you'd have to splice together Nigella Lawson, Karen Brady, and Margaret Thatcher to match her. And if you did, that's what you'd get. (laughs) (laughs) Which actually ain't bad. I have to say, when we did it with Anita Roddick, uh, it was slightly different. 
So in the Bible, heroism, and this is really important, particularly for men, what does it mean to be heroic? How has the church defined heroism for us? In the Bible, heroism is not just manifested in war and in response to crisis. It's manifested in godly character and in godly action in ordinary life. So it's perhaps no coincidence in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth follows immediately after the book of Proverbs. As if to say, you have, we've given you a picture of what the fear of the Lord looks in this upper class woman. What it looks to live wisely. And now we're going to give you a picture of what it looks to live wisely with a poor widow and, if you like, a middle income farmer. And so there are other clues, too, in the text that Boaz might really have meant this greeting. That he's a man concerned for the welfare of others. That he conforms to God's way of doing things. For, after all, the poor are gleaning in his fields, as God had ordained it should be in Leviticus. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So here is a, a businessman, or if you like, who wasn't trying to gather every last grain, screw down every last penny of profit for himself without any concern for the wider community. Built into the very fabric of the way he's doing things was a concern to the poor. Even though he hadn't heard terms like corporate social responsibility or business in the community. A while back I, I went to um, visit um, a company called the London Fan Company. It's a company, it's in London, and they make fans. And I was uh, being shown around this factory, and as you can imagine, there's some metal shavings on the floor. And I asked the managing director, Andrew Weber, that's Andrew, uh, what do you do with those? And he said, well, we sweep them up, as you might expect, and then we take them to a scrap metal merchant, as you might expect, and he weighs them, as you might expect, and he gives us a check, as you might expect, and then they give the check to a local charity, which you might not expect. It may not be much, but it reflects something about their heart. That sounds all very grand, doesn't it? We're not all managing directors, and you don't necessarily need to be one, do you, to make some small or large difference wherever you might be in these sorts of places. Maybe you could check uh, how much the people who were cleaning your offices this morning when you got up are paid. Curious thing. Um, this is uh, Kelly Gager. She's not. She's not a man, but she's made it to this presentation nevertheless. And uh, she works in a small organisation in central London, and she engaged a cleaning company as a manager called uh, Spotless. They pay their cleaners six pounds fifty an hour, the minimum wage. Most of those people do, in fact, come from overseas. So she went to her director of operations and asked if they could arrange to pay their cleaner the London living wage which is £9.15, which is around 43.85% per hour more than the minimum wage. Now, I wonder what you would say. I wonder what you would say if you were the director of operations. It comes to about, it's not a big, big, big office, so it comes to about £1,000 a year. I wonder what you would say. And I wonder what you would say if you were the director Well, that particular director said, fine, let's go with it. It's an interesting phenomenon, outsourcing, isn't it? Because outsourcing allows a lot of companies to pay people who actually 
do work for them less than they would actually dare pay their own people. It's a way of saying those they're outsiders, so we don't have to really care for them. I wonder what the business case might be. Anyway, there's lots of ways to respond, little and large, and uh, I have loads of good examples, actually, and probably in many of your places there are lots of good examples, too. But Burr's engagement with his culture does go deeper than concern for the poor. It actually goes to the very heart of the way the work is done. First of all, he's creating work. He's creating jobs. That's a pretty good thing to do. It's interesting, isn't it? In the church, we tend to make heroes of people who help the poor directly, and quite rightly. But we don't really make heroes of people who prevent people getting poor in the first place. And are those people who create jobs? Whether by starting a company or just by doing really good work so that everyone else stays employed. So Baz is, isn't just creating jobs, he's running his business with a sense of values that his men know and which they abide by. Later, for example, at the end of the chapter, we, we read in verse 22, Naomi encourages Ruth not to go gleaning in other people's fields because she might be sexually harassed, but in Boaz's fields she'll be safe. In fact, Boaz in verse 9 proactively seeks to protect her. I've told the men not to touch you. So he is seeking, he's, he's ensuring that God's values set the tone. And whilst there are things he can assume that his foreman will indeed allow her to glean in his fields, he's also sharply aware of what men are like. And just how vulnerable Ruth is. How vulnerable a youngish, impoverished female foreigner without an obvious male protector might be. How vulnerable any newcomer in an organisation is how vulnerable some intern, some impressionable new graduate might be. And he proactively heads it off at the pass. I wonder when you think about your organisation, what you can assume your fellow employees will do and what you actually have a suspicion that they will not do. In Boaz's workplace, Biblical truth is obeyed and the way is walked. He's creating a context, if you like, for human flourishing where good work can be done in a good way. He, he is, it seems, long before EY came up with their purpose statement committed to building a better working world. He's doing that. And we have to remember that this is all happening in the judges' period when Israel is in radical moral decline, when Israel has repeatedly turned to other gods. So it's in this context that Boaz is shining. Other people aren't living the same way. And it's a curious thing. I've got lots of examples of people operating in this, these kinds of ways, and I'm sure actually if we went around the room we'd probably have another 50. So I'm certainly not here to say that uh, people aren't doing things. In fact, what we find often is that um, most Christians don't realise what fantastic fantastic things they are doing because it hasn't been interpreted in that way. Uh, A while back I was talking to a man who protects the Prime Minister. 
and um, he's, he's not a senior policeman but uh, he's on the armed protection service at number 10 and uh, people are asking questions in this particular group but what are you good at in the Lord at work it's a kind of jargony phrase and being southern English people we decided not to say anything for a while anyway finally sort of, someone says well you know I, I protect the Prime Minister it's a pretty macho team and you might expect and there's quite a lot of conflict antlers coming together and he said over the years I've, I found out I'm, I'm quite good at bringing people back together that's what he said and looked a bit sheepish and then someone said you've got a ministry of reconciliation wow hot dog <laughs> I've got a ministry of reconciliation and he's right he does He's a peacemaker. He's teaching people how to forgive one another. He's showing people that the ways of Jesus are good. Right there. But did he know it? No. Most of you are probably doing fantastic things. Like dolphins. Dolphins on the whole don't know how good they are at swimming. And praise God the Spirit is in them. And these things are significant to God. And uh, had we about world enough in time I could give you many more examples. The man who changed the um, the appraisal systems of a multinational of a multinational manufacturing company rather difficult thing to do from the middle of the company because he felt that they were unfair and so on and these, these things happen in a variety of ways I'll just tell this story because it pertains to somebody here a while back I uh, went down to a place called Electronic Arts it's quite a long time ago now but, um, and some of you may know somebody who used to work there and I've been asked uh, to think about um, values and uh, helping some people to think about the culture there. And I happened to turn up on the day when they were doing their, their award ceremony. It was a splendid time to turn up. And um, they had a number of awards, and these aren't all of them. One of them was for MVP, it's an American company in Roots, so most valuable player. Everyone wanted that one. Um, that's a good award to win. Then there was Rookie of the Year, um, and there were five of them. I thought that was interesting. It wasn't just one, it was five. And then there was International Awareness, which I thought was an interesting award because it reflects in an American company desire that we're actually sensitive to other cultures. So it affirms that value very well. Then there's Eternal Flame. Some, you know, uh, somebody's been there a long time, done a good job, which in a media company is about three weeks. And, um, and then there's Unsung Hero, those people that actually aren't necessarily the movers and the shapers, bringing in the business, finding the next big game or whatever it might be, but just people. You suddenly wake up one day and think, without these people, wow. Fantastic. But behind those things are values. And they can be empty. They can just they can be walked, but they can be real. My impression was in that place they were very real. And we started to do this London Institute. We had an award. Uh, we have an award ceremony. I give them out, and uh, uh, one of them is quite a good piece of work, really. <laughs> we're kind of modest. <laughs> and the other one is um, the "You Proved Me Wrong" award, uh, which I've only had occasion to give once. <laughs> now the point about this is that Poaz is seeking to make peace he's seeking to create a context for human flourishing this is the role of the people of God wherever they find themselves and so when the people of God are exiled in Jeremiah 29 what does the God say through the prophet seek the shalom and prosperity the well-being, ecological, relational, economic, political peace, wellness of the city to which I've called into exile seek it proactively and pray for it. This is the job. This is what you go to do in an hour's time. This is the job. 
And it's, it's totally consistent with what Jesus is doing on the, on the cross. So, for example, whoops, too many logos. There you go. By him, all, we know all things were created, visible and, and invisible, heaven and earth. All things were created by him and for Christ. But more than that, we're happy with Jesus creating all things, but he comes to reconcile all things, to restore all things to the way they should be, by making shalom, peace, through his blood shed on the cross. All things. So this is the grand purpose that we're invited into, to make the world as much like Jesus would like it to be before he returns. That's what we're about. His kingdom come, his will be done, as in heaven, so on earth, as in heaven, so in my city, and so in my street, my workplace, my gym. Iron Age Israelite agriculture was intended to be a picture of the way things should be in God's kingdom. And in Christ, in 21st century Britain, we work toward the same ends in all the places God places us. Now the thing about Boaz is not only that he's ensuring that his ethos works itself out, What's interesting about him is that it's not a calculating obedience to the law. Because he doesn't just let her glean. He grasps the heart behind the law. So he tells her to drink from the water jars. He sees the person. He should, he's noticed that she's come to glean and perhaps hadn't brought her own sandwiches. So he invites her to join them for bread dipped in vinegar which is a kind of 10th, 11th century equivalent of salt and vinegar crisps, Boaz demonstrating a greater generosity than Gary Lineker ever would. And, uh, here it is. <laughs> but notice the text here. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine and vinegar. Come over here. Well, it seems a simple thing to say, doesn't it? But look at the disparity in the status. Boaz is a male in a patriarchal society. Ruth is a female. Boaz is an Israelite. Ruth is a Moabite. Boaz is a landowner. Ruth is a gleaner. Boaz is rich. She's poor. He's a bulwark of the community and she's an outsider. The CEO is eating with a cleaner. Incredible humility. He doesn't just bless her materially. He includes her socially. Hard thing to do. But not for him. And when she sits down, he offers some roasted grain. And beyond that, he tells the harvesters to pull out some stalks for her. And look at the detail. Um, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Verse 15. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave the bird a pick and don't rebuke her. Now this is very generous. It's a generosity that preserves Ruth's dignity. Do we preserve the dignity of the people who work for us, I wonder? She's come to pick up stray grains of barley like a sparrow might peck up fallen seeds. It's back-breaking work. This is Miller, 1857, social realist. But cleaning did do one thing. It involved the person in providing themselves. It was real work. And it meant that food wasn't wasted, just as Archer and Paris bring your apples to us and we'll juice them for you. Business combats waste. Fantastic. But they're doing work. 
point is, is that Boaz doesn't just give Ruth a sack of grain. He lets her work. And he's encouraging his people to be generous by allowing her to gather among the sheaves and actually getting them to drop the occasional stalk. Which might, you know, a grain is one seed, a stalk contains a barley, barley, the stalk contains 30. He's showing them what generosity looks like. He's involving them in being generous. They're tasting what it feels like to help people. And then he prays. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord your God. Sorry, Lord, the God of Israel. Under his wings you've come to take refuge. Why? Because he admires her commitment to her mother-in-law and her decision to follow the Lord. I've been told about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with people you did not know before. I wonder on what basis we praise people around us. Is it just the stuff on the appraisal form? Or is there something else? Things that show people what's really important to us. Things that are consistent with God's character. That was kind of you to go and get Jane a sandwich when she was snowed under. That was humble of you to make sure that the MD knew that Pat did all the work. That was brave of you to say that you didn't think it would be fair on the client to withhold that information. So what does Boaz do? Permission, provision, protection, praise, prayer. Not a bad thing to have done. And this is about grace. It's beyond, isn't it? He doesn't have to do this. All he's required to do by the law is to allow her to glean. But behind the law is a God of love. Gleaning is given because God anticipates that it will be poor people. Gleaning expresses his love, but it doesn't stop there. His love is greater than that. Still, they're still left with a problem. At the end of the harvest, there's a problem. Um, there's no child to carry on the family name. The barley harvest is in, the wheat harvest in, and Boaz has not made a move. So Naomi does. She tells, she tells, uh, she tells Ruth to put on her, to wash, to put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor at night after he's finished the winnowing, and uh, don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating things. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now I wonder what is in Naomi's mind sending this young woman there. No, um, I have to say that my, my PA and my female PA chose that dress. Elegant, tasteful, slightly modest. Uh, it's good, isn't it? And uh, Ruth uncovers his feet, but nothing happens, and he got this wonderful little moment. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and saw that there was a woman lying there. Well, we'll come back to that. How does Boaz, this older man, a bachelor, respond to the presence of a well-dressed, sweet-smelling, single, younger woman in his presence in the middle of the night? He doesn't touch her. He tells her that he is a kinsman redeemer, but there's somebody else who has the first call on her, and he tells her that he will resolve the issue. He is a man of purity. 
Now it's interesting, if you look at the text, several times it says in the text that Boaz is older than Ruth. Old enough, it seems, to recognise that such a young woman might not be interested in an older man, but young enough to jump at the chance when it is clear that she is, which in our culture would make him somewhere between 30 and 97 years old. (laughs) (laughs) So despite his long bachelorhood, he doesn't rush in to clinch the deal, but respects the biblical law, ensures that the other man with a right to her uh, hand is given the first right of refusal. The other kinsman of Even with so much at stake, he honours God's law, he honours the community. And here again we see grace. Boaz wants to redeem just as Jesus wants to redeem us, wants to see all, no one perish. It doesn't come in a sense because he has to. Love compels him to. But in Boaz we don't just see an Old Testament figure who foreshadows Jesus, the greater redeemer, who gives us a name that is written in heaven, in the book of heaven. We see a man that the Holy Spirit wants to teach us something about. What's he given us? The Holy Spirit here. A man who is dependent on God, who cares for employees, who's concerned for the poor, who protects the vulnerable, who's generous, who enjoys life, who's sexually pure and community-minded. But there's more. Beginning of this um, book, we were asked by the writer to make a comparison with uh, the book of Judges. And at the end, we're told this. The elders of town pray that your family will be like that of Perez, whom Tamar brought to Judah. And that takes us back in time to Judah, whose first son marries Tamar and dies and whose second son, Onan, pulls out. Onan, he pulls out of the obligations of leverate marriage, and he too dies. So Judah, like Naomi, has lost two sons, but he refuses to allow his third son to marry Tamar. She seems to be bad luck, doesn't she? Two down, only one to go. And so Tamar is so desperate, if you recall the story, to bear a child that she disguises herself as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law, Judah, who, and she succeeds. And she has his child, and the line is preserved. What a contrast with Boaz and Ruth. Boaz who honours the obligation of leverant marriage. Boaz who will not let his sexual desire interfere with the rights of another. Ruth who behaves with propriety throughout. So God is continuing to fulfil his promises, whether through the unrighteous acts of Tamar and Judah, or the righteous acts of Boaz and Ruth. He will fulfil his purposes. But the book doesn't just stop there. At the end, what are we told? Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, who will be born in Bethlehem. And this takes us forward, doesn't it? Forward to Christ, to Matthew's Gospel, where we are reminded that Boaz is the great, 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 great-grandfather of Jesus. So how does God work? Well, sometimes he sends a word through a prophet like Micaiah ben Sometimes he speaks from a burning bush. Sometimes he wrestles with us and touches our hip back. But in our text, she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters as it turned out. 
as it turned out. She was working in a field belonging to Bala. What a coincidence, as Rick in Casablanca might have put it, that of all the fields in all the towns, Ruth had to end up in Boaz's. As it turned out, God's hand, surely. As it turned out, God put me in this company. As it turned out, I was sitting next to this person today. As it turned out, I was with that client. As it turned out. I wonder if you can see similar things in your own life. And it's the same in chapter 3. Something startled a man. So in Moses' life, we can see God working to fulfil his purposes quietly through Levitical law, providential timing, and the community. God working in the lives of ordinary men and women who meet one day at work as if by chance. And simultaneously, God on the grand stage of history working out his great plan of salvation through Jesus. I wonder what God has been up to in your life. I wonder what he's up to now. I wonder what you can see. I wonder what you will only see from the perspective of heaven. God working out his purposes. Our lives, our ordinary lives, our work, our relationships woven into his tapestry, turning all things to his good purposes until Jesus returns. So as you go into your fields, your offices, your kitchen, your community. The Lord be with you. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, so much to uh, think on, reflect on. And uh, why don't we do that now, guys? We've got. Just over ten minutes. Why don't we turn in uh, into threes, perhaps, and uh, just take two minutes each to reflect on what does it look like for us in the twenty-first century to seek the prosperity, seek the good of the city in which we find ourselves, that shalom peace, and uh, seek God's kingdom here. So why don't we just reflect on one thing that we can do differently uh, in our lives today to bring that shalom where we are, and then let's pray for each other. Um, and then we'll close it to close. Once again, many thanks for being with us this morning. Um, here at Burning Mountain, we have a desire to just see uh, men coming alive uh, in Christ through the Holy Spirit uh, by His words um, and living for His glory, making a difference uh, in our city, seeking the prosperity of the city. And um, so uh, we're all for stuff that uh, does stuff and achieves that with. Man, and I have a very dear friend this morning. I just uh, wonder if you could give us two minutes of your time uh, as I welcome up Jane Drake, who runs an organisation called Forum. And there's a very exciting opportunity for all of us men here today coming up. Thanks for your time, chaps. I will be quick. It's really a simple sell because uh, if you're anything like me, you spend your time trying to eradicate risk from your life and um, bed yourselves in and make yourselves more comfortable, protect your family and look after everybody around you and perhaps buy a bigger car and maybe a nicer house. Um, but we all know that that runs counter to what we actually believe in our faith. That's the opposite of the radical life we're trying to live at the other end. And I know that many of you already know that, so you do lots of other great things to counter that. But one thing I want to uh, tell you about is this uh, idea that's come out of Holland that's been going for five years. Over 6,000 men 
have engaged with this concept. They've raised four and a half million euros for three charities, for one that works with widows and orphans, one that rescues women from the sex industry, and one that helps the persecuted church. So there's a very clear, distinct goal uh, involved in the musketeer idea. And the idea is that it develops a brotherhood of men who call each other out. I wonder if Boaz turned up in that field on his own, or whether he actually became a man like that because of the people he surrounded himself with, who also called him out and said, when she came and slept by her feet, what were you doing? What was going on there? Was that, was that good or was that not? So what happened is these guys have come out of, of Holland and they've come to the UK and said, please, can we get this going? Because we think there's some fantastic men in the UK. And I said, yes, there are. And they said, so what we want to do is run uh, what we they call an extreme character challenge weekend. It's a physical challenge, but it's not too much. If you can um, run a little bit and do a few press-ups and walk up a flight of stairs without being out of breath, you will be fine. And essentially, the physical challenge is... Marx is that's extreme. Um, the physical challenge is basically the, the mechanism through which you go on a journey inward. And we all know that if you've done anything with John Eldridge or Wilder Hart, we wear poses. This morning, I've had about 15 poses going through my mind as to how to present to you guys. What should I look like? How should I come across? What do I want to sell? Effectively, the best thing I can do is show you my heart. And I find that hard because I'm a man, and I'm actually fine, thanks. I don't need you guys. I'm sorted. And even after Boaz talked today, how long did it take us to start praying? We talked and we talked and we talked, but none of us wanted to pray because that's the hardest bit. And so I think what happens through this challenge is you start to go with a group of men, you start to move together with them, you go through extreme challenges together, uh, and as you do that, you're led along the way and guided with some various sort of thoughts and moments of inspiration. Those open your heart, and then the guy next to you actually tells you that he's had the same problem or he went through that recently. And then you hear his story, and then you begin to fall in love with him as a brother. And then over those 72 hours, my experience was like I got to know men I'd never met before in a way that I was never expecting to. I went with other guys I also knew, and I got to know them like brothers. And there's one chap I went with, uh, Miles Dillon, if any of you know him. Our relationship's completely transformed since this experience. We are now one. We just constantly, uh, we know each other so well that if there's any issue that I have, I don't need to give him the background, I don't need to give him all the, all the details. I can just mention a word and so I know what your problem is, I know what you need, and I'm praying for you on this front. But also, brilliantly, uh, non-Christians went along and go along, and I heard uh, one of the testimonies at the end was of a guy, and I'll tell you very briefly, just to encourage you. He came to the front, a massive Dutch bloke, big blonde guy, looked like he played for South Africa uh, rugby, and he said, um, I've come here with uh, nine other men from my town in, in Holland. Eight of them, their wives, have banned them from speaking for me. One of them invited me to come. He's my builder. The reason the other eight were banned is because I'm the local drug dealer, I'm the crime baron, I'm a violent man, I drink too much, I'm having four affairs, and I'm, I'm not the guy you want to know in the village. And then he just started crying. And he just said that in this weekend he's met Jesus. And he's also met men that love him for who he is. And he met Jesus at the cross. And he asked Jesus to forgive him. And with tears down, he's rolling on his face. He's going back to my village. One of these guys, the police officer in the town, I've told him where I stash my drugs. I've told him who I buy them off. I've told the guys the names of all the four women I'm having affairs with. He said that, you know, I'm going to tell my wife. I don't know how I'm going to do it. He's crying, he's crying. And as I'm looking, I'm thinking, how many pints in a pub would it have taken me? How many weeks and weeks and weeks of like, well, we're doing a bit of, sort of discipleship with this guy, I'm trying to connect with him. How many weeks and months and years would it have got me to get him to confess one of those things? 
72 hours with guys like you, his life was transformed. So if you want to get involved, uh, there's a Muscathlon, uh, which is a marathon in other countries. There's also an XCC in Scotland that Pat's coming on. Others of you in the room are coming on it. Uh, I would love to talk to you more about it. I've got little bits and pieces. They've also got Musk 4, which is a magazine that tells you about it. Everything has Musk to do with it, because it's all for one and one for all in the service of the King of Kings. See you later. <laughs> So do come and join me. End of April, isn't it? Yeah. Hell yeah, hell yeah. We want to see you there. Just to say, uh, we're back here in two weeks. Kane Costa's here looking at King Hezekiah. And then two weeks after that, we've got uh, the Reverend William Taylor from St. Helens Bishopsgate finishing off our time of Burning Man. So great to see you, gents. Um, the offering box is on your way out. Uh, £5 per session if you have it, or £30 for the time. God bless. Live for his glory. Amen. Amen.